welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich. Also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Harry T. Stone presiding. And this on the docket tonight is Downton Abbey. Uh, I am your prosecuting attorney for these proceedings, Mr. Mark Radlitz, a mandated reporter. And joining me in defense of this hoidiest of toity is the science fiction man himself, Mr. David Wright. How do you do, sir? I am so on brand tonight. You really are. I and we need to start the discussion right at right at there. So uh, you're you're my sci-fi guy. You're my guy. We yeah. do Lost in Space. We do Star Trek and all of that. And then I'm like, I'm gonna do. Um, you know, there's, there's this new Downton Abbey sequel coming out. I'm going to take my wife to it. Anyone interested in reviewing it? And you were like, me. And I'm like, have you seen the first one? And you're like, yes. Like, do you want to do it on trial for the first one? And you were like, absolutely. And I went, is the real David right there? I'd like to speak with him, please. So explain to me what your deal is. Like, how did we come to Downton Abbey? Yeah, as much as I, I, I do like sci-fi, that's my real jam. Uh, it's also nice to watch things other than sci-fi, you know, broaden, broaden the palette. That's true. I, I actually painted you in a poor corner because you're also my crown guy, you and Andrew. Yes, yes. And, and the anime guy, it seems. <coughs> well, I, I wear many hats. Yeah, that's right. You, you're not just one kind of personality. Uh, yeah. But as for this show, uh, I, I think part of it comes from like my background is very English. Like I'm first generation Canadian, but pretty much my family tree above me is all english okay as far as far back as we can go um so it was i thought yeah so it's kind of neat to go up and see something from you know the old country <laughs> okay for you so for you this is like a cultural thing like oh well, I, i'm getting a, a bit more of a of... cultural thing like okay. like when, when you realize that the children portrayed in this film are about the same generation as my grandparents mm -hmm. okay so you and your wife watch the whole series yes yeah, yeah, and that's the other part too. Have a wife, so it's kind of you know. Yeah, I got to it. Watch apparently to be. Though, though to her credit, my wife has watched many a Star Trek and has enjoyed most of them. So that must be nice. It um, is to, to have a wife that's interested in what you do as a man. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so my question to you is: um, you and the wife sat and you guys watched the series. Tell me a little bit about that because I never watched the series. That was kind of my wife's. That was the joke I was about to make. To be a white woman in this world, you have to like true crime podcasts and British television uh, and smutty books. Those are apparently the white woman starter kit. Um, except that your woman's not white. Uh, so, <laughs> so you guys sat and you watched Downton Abbey. Um, I guess it's something that at least one of you was interested in and brought the other one along. Tell me what your impressions of the series were. Yeah, it was, it was mostly, hey, you might like this. Let's give it a watch and see. And she's like, yeah, I like this. So we watched more. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the show is very well produced. Like the, the movie is very much just an extended episode. That's one of my criticisms. <laughs> yeah, for better or worse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, so yeah, the, the show is well acted. It's the cinematography is good. The music's like, like, you know, technically it's all there. Uh I, I think what makes it sort of interesting is it's a look at 
the aristocracy in England at the beginning mm -hmm. of the 20th century. Okay. And, you know, and especially for us North Americans where we don't really have that. Right. Like I once had a, a friend uh, while I was in Japan, he was from the UK and he said like, you know, do you North Americans, like, what, what do you think of class? It's like, well, what, what do you mean? Like, you know, lords and ladies and, you know, knights and nobles and dukes and all that. It's like, well, we don't really have that. We just really have, you know, rich people and not rich people. <laughs> sure. That's, yeah, I mean, I guess you could sort of say that some dynasties have grown up over the, over the years, like, you know, the Kennedys or the Cokes or Got a question on and so forth. Yeah. For TikTok purposes, I have to okay. <laughs> for TikTok purposes, what do you think is the reason the uh, the English folk still hang on to the legacy of the uh, aristocracy? You know, the um, <clears throat> kings and queens and dukes and whatnot. It's an outdated modality. Their government doesn't really operate that way. The king or the queen is sort of a figurehead for the government. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the government is, is du duly elected by the people, just as it is in America. Uh, you have a prime minister and all of that. But in watching uh, certain things having to do with uh, British culture and sort of listening to the way other people talk, like, for example, my wife, and my mother-in-law are big into this. And I, I've kind of posed this question to two, like, why are we still hanging on to, like, why do people care at this point about the, um, the royal bloodline? And I never really get a good answer for that. But it's just like, well, it's always been there. It's always going to be there. People are fascinated with, with it. The British people don't seem to want it to go away. They just don't want it to interfere. And this I might be cribbing completely from the crown. <clears throat> they don't want it to go away. They just don't want it to interfere in how the country runs. To which I say, but then why don't you want it to just go away? What is, what is the purpose of shelling millions and millions of dollars into keeping these people in riches uh, when it doesn't really add anything of value from my perspective. What do you think? Okay, yeah, the, the, the technical term for it is a constitutional monarchy, which England and Canada also has. Okay. Uh, so England did try to get rid of the monarchy. Uh, monarchy, uh, that was the word I was looking for. Yeah, Sorry. yeah it's a fancy word. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget the exact dates, but you had uh, like Charles I of, of England. He basically made a lot of people very unhappy and they uh, killed him for it. And sure. they established a republic under, I think it was Oliver Cromwell, I assume. I'm, I can always confuse with James Cromwell. One's an actor, one's a historical figure. But... We're going to go with James Cromwell as the actor. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, and it just didn't work. Like, it just didn't work out. And they eventually were able to get, uh, find the sort of the next living relative to come and become the new king, which I believe was Charles II of England, who did pretty good, mostly because he remembered what happened to Charles I. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't do what he did. Uh, so I would probably go with, uh, the best explanation for the monarchy I've ever had was from, uh, Stephen Fry, another actor. Yes. Uh, who said like, yes, when you look at the monarchy, it's very silly. It's foolish. It's stupid. But for some reason it works and we don't know why, but if you take the monarchy away, things just start falling apart. That's just the way it is. And he goes into a bit more de, bit more, uh, depth in that, uh, like part of it is the aspect of tradition or having something to rally around. Mm -hmm. uh, like he refers to like the, the, the queen in this case as basically uh, you have a living flag in sure. your country. That actually and, somewhat tracks for me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, two more points I'd make on that is one is you, you think like, you know, 
Queen Elizabeth has been reigning for almost 70 years now. Mm-hmm. And and the queen, whilst she does not make policy, she does consult with the prime minister. So mm-hmm. you have this person who has, a, in, in the queen's case especially, a, a long lifetime's worth of experience and perspective sort of there to, you know, sort of whisper in the ear and offer advice to Mm-hmm. To, to the democratic elected representative. I mean, again, the, the the prime minister does not have to listen to the queen or obey whatever she says. But, no, but it's kind of like a grand vizier, you know, <laughs> like a, a bit, yeah. czarist Russia. Like somebody's just like whispering in in the in the king's ear, like eh, maybe do this, not that. Yeah, and it also sort of functions as a egotistical check. Like no matter how high you get in society, there's always going to be someone above you unless you are the queen. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember uh, from the movie The Queen. Uh, when Tony Blair first came in to have his first meeting with the Queen, and I believe he was at the time like somewhat of an anti-monarchist. Again, mm-hmm. in England, there is a debate over whether or not the monarchy should still be around. Right. And and the Queen says, you know, many men have sat in that chair before me. The first was Churchill. And that was just like, you know, boom, you were just slapped down. You know, like, you know, you, you think you're hot. You think you're the man because you won the election, you know. I have seen much better than you, and you better bring it if you want to get to that level. Uh, okay. Yeah. There's something to the idea. I don't know how convinced I am, by the way. Yeah. I listen to you, and I, and I respect your, your thoughts on it. I also know that you are not you know, the, the constitutional monarchy expert that I was bringing on today to discuss the merits of... You know, uh, that I wouldn't quite say an expert, but, but those, those are some <laughs> of the better arguments I have heard. Yeah, no, no, and I, I get that. I was teasing you. But yeah. I... I <clears throat> The idea that um, one people don't naturally rally; they they really do need like a flag to rally around. But I think there's also, and I'm starting to say this, um, this idea that if nothing else, the monarchy brings wisdom. They they may not have that wisdom acted upon; it may not be actionable. But they've at least seen the last hundred years of history. They have a perspective. And sometimes that perspective is missing from modern government. Um, I look at like the United States and I think, you know, if we still had some of the people that were around for the last 70 years to kind of say, hey, maybe what we're doing here isn't such a great idea. Maybe do it this way. Or, you know, this isn't the first time we've been this polarized. This is how we handled it the first time. Things of that nature. There's probably something to that. There's some weight to it that, you know, grants it uh, some validity, some usefulness so all right i'll allow it you guys can have a monarchy it's fine <laughs> oh thanks <laughs> i've ruled um all right so getting back to downton abbey here uh we're going to talk about this film this is uh a 2019 historical drama written by julianne fellow series creator and writer of the television series of the same name and directed by michael engler the film is produced by Carnival Films and Perfect World Pictures and continues the storyline from the series with much of the original cast returning. The film is set in 1927, depicts a royal visit to the Crawley family stately home in Yorkshire. A royal staff member, as royal staff members descend on Downton, an assassin has also arrived because we needed some action in this movie and attempts to kill the monarch. The Crawleys and their servants are pitted against the royal entourage, including the queen's lady-in-waiting, who has fallen out uh, with the Crawley family, especially the Dowager Countess, over an inheritance issue. Um, all right, so here's the plot to this. In 1927, the Crawleys received word that King George V 
and Queen Mary intend to visit Downton during the, their royal tour of Yorkshire, exciting both the family and the staff. As the servants begin preparation, Lady Mary feels that Barrow is ill-equipped to manage such an important event and thus recruits Carson to briefly exit retirement in order to assist. Much to Barrow. Yeah, Barrow is the butler. Carson was the previous butler. Gotcha. Shortly thereafter, members of the royal staff begin to arrive at Downton in advance of the king and queen themselves. While Richard Ellis, the king's valet, treats the Downton staff kindly, the rest of the entourage are arrogant and rude, making it clear that the royal staff intends to supplant that of Downton for the duration of the visit. In addition, small items keep disappearing from the house. Bertie and Edith Pelham, Lord and Lady Hexham, arrive the day before the royal couple is due to visit. That evening, chairs for the parade seating are delivered during heavy rain, and Lady Mary leads a messy group effort to position the chairs for the next day. The weather clears and the king and queen arrive at Downton, where they are introduced to the Crawley family. Violet exchanges cold pleasantries with the queen's lady-in-waiting, Maud, who is Robert's first cousin, once removed, and Tom meets her maid, Lucy Smith. Violet begrudges Maud for her decision to bequeath her estate to Lucy rather than to Robert. Meanwhile, in the village, Tom encourages a mysterious man, identifying himself as Major Chetwode, whom Tom initially believes is assessing security ahead of the royal visit and parade. Later, when the parade is set to begin, Chetwood prepares to assassinate the king in staging area, but is thwarted by Tom, whom he mistakenly believed was an ally because of their shared Irish origins. And Lady Mary, who disarms him after Tom pins him to the ground. After the parade, Tom encourages a woman sobbing on Downton's lawn. Unbeknownst to him, the woman is Princess Mary. She laments her failing marriage, but Tom lifts her spirits and ultimately motivates her to remain with her husband. Anna and Mr. Bates rally the Downton staff into retaking control of Downton's operation while the royal couple is visiting. Barrow and Ellis trick Mr. Wilson, the page of the backstairs, into ordering some of the royal staff to return home to London early. Anna slips a strong sedative into the tea of royal chef Monsieur Colbet, and Wilson himself is accidentally locked in his room, quote-unquote. Hannah has surmised that Miss Lawton, the Queen's dresser, is stealing the house items and leverages her knowledge of Lawton's crimes to compel her to alter a gown for Lady Hexham. Such drama. The Towton staff, with the assistance of Mr. Molesley and Albert, manage the dinner that marks the end of the royal visit. The revised menu elicits high praise from the king, which in turn prompts Molesley to break protocol, announce that it was the Downton staff, not the royal staff, that produced it. This is the high point of the movie for me, by the way. <laughs> that, I can see that. That evening, Barrow and Ellis make a trip to York. Ellis visits his parents while Barrow waits for him at a pub. And a man, uh, a man at the pub invites Barrow to an underground gay nightclub. But shortly after their arrival there, police raid the venue and arrest the attendees. Ellis, also a closeted gay man, soon learns what happens and uses his position in the royal household to get Barrow released from police custody. Isabel deduces that Lucy is Maud's illegitimate daughter, which is why she stands to inherit Maud's estate. Isabel challenges Maud to explain the situation to Violet. The next morning, Henry returns home after traveling abroad and joins the Crawleys at Harewood House. Along with the royal family, during the ball that evening at Harewood, Princess Mary informs her parents that Tom helped save her marriage by convincing her to remain with her husband, and she encourages the king to speak with Tom. He approaches Tom and expresses gratitude, and also implying that he's aware of Tom's role in thwarting the assassination attempt at the parade. The king releases Bertie from his obligation to join the Prince of Wales on the three-month tour of Africa, which the king had requested earlier in the visit. Bertie had initially accepted the commitment, but he later wished to back out of the trip after learning of Edith's pregnancy, like you do. Thanks to Cora and the Queen's intervention, the King had a change of heart and rescinded his request. Meanwhile, Maud privately confesses Maud. <laughs> then there's Maud to Violet that Lucy is her daughter, which is why she made Lucy her, her heir instead of Robert. Violet finally understands the situation and the two reconcile. Violet then begins plotting to keep Maud's estate in the Crawley family in the future. 
the reunion of Tom and Lucy as she had taken notice of the pair's budding romance earlier. Finally, Lady Mary quietly asked Violet about her visit to London. Violet informs her that she had gone for a doctor's visit during which she learned that she may not have a long to live. Mary is distraught, but Violet assures her that Downton is and legacy are safe in Mary's hands. As this conversation carries on, Tom finds Lucy on the terrace and the two dance in the dark while listening to the music played inside at the ball. All right. So I want to give you a chance to talk because I just did a lot of talking, uh, the plot synopsis. So tell me what you think is good about this movie, and then I will tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's, I think, like I said at the beginning, it is a continuation of the show. It can keeps up with some of the plot lines that were left dangling at the end of the show, whilst also kind of adding a few new things. Mm. Yeah, of course, Royal Visit to Downton was what I would have done for, if someone said, you have to write a Downton Abbey movie. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah that kind of really the the biggest problem with the movie is uh if if you have not if you're not into the show you're going to be a bit lost in the movie and if you don't like the show you're not going to like the movie it's it's sort of like you know like bob chipman's review of i think like six harry potter movies like look they've made five of these things now you already know if you're going to go see it you already know if you don't like it it's right. more of the same like yeah what what what, what do you want me to do <laughs> Yeah, if you That's like Downton Abbey, you will like Downton Abbey the movie. If you do right. not like Downton Abbey, you will not like Downton Abbey the movie. There's nothing new here that changes the formula. Let me let me interject there because that is a big problem I have with this. I think there is a way to write. First of all, I don't love the concept of the long episode as a movie. Yeah, I think then just make a TV movie or make an extended episode. I said yeah. this to my we we rewatched this last Thursday. And I made the same remark to my wife. She was like, yeah, this reminds me of the Christmas episode. Yeah. Which I, I have no context for. I, I, I think it was, it was I, well, the, I know the last episode was a Christmas episode, but there have been mm -hmm. other Christmas episodes. But yeah, every so often you'll have like a 90-minute a episode right. as opposed to just a one-hour episode. And I think this clocks in at, um, yeah, just over two hours. And here, here's the thing. Like, the movie experience should be a spectacle mm -hmm. if you're going to translate something from television to the movie you have to make it an event it has to be bigger the extended tv episode as movies i don't think works very well not on the big screen at least and i and i understand like the counter argument by debbie but people went to go see it it made money so what what difference does it make? I mean, I think on a twenty million dollar budget, this thing made two hundred million dollars. Yeah, um, you know, Universal and Focus Features were not upset about this at all, and that's why we got another one. Yeah, uh, and and I get I get that, but I do think I do think words mean things, and I think the the theater, the film, should be something special and not just an extended version of a television episode. That being said. I mean, I, I, I get the argument that, well, if you'd watch the show, this would be a little bit more meaningful to you. It's not my job to do the homework. Yeah. <laughs> it, oh, is my, it is my job to be shown a feature that is, a, that is standalone enough that someone like me should be able to appreciate it. And in defense of this movie, it is a very pretty movie to watch. It's well acted. It has a nice aesthetic to it. Um, this isn't really my thing, but I appreciate things that aren't my thing, and I can say nice things about them, which what makes me different from everyone else on this network. Anyway, right. <laughs> almost everybody. <laughs> um, but my point is, 
I think I, I, watching it a second time, I know that the first time I watched it in the theater with my wife, I was struggling with it. And this second time around, I, it just lost me towards the end. I was like, I, there's not an, they, they do not go out of their way in the film structure to build enough investment for anyone who's never seen the show before. So I just, as an example of that, I had to have it explained to me why it was a big deal that the uh, the King's staff was taking over for the Downton Abbey staff, and the Downton Abbey staff was PO'd about it, and that yeah. this was this was a major bone of contention and one of the major like dramatic points of the movie. Like this is a big plot line that the maids and the servants, the butlers, were being displaced by the King's staff, and there was like chicanery to get their spot back. And it and it, and that's why I said the bit with Mosley where he's just like, no, we cooked the meal, and you could see. You can see him just unraveling and he knows he fucked up and you can, and it's funny. I was listening back to Jesse and I talking about Ozark and we talk like take a drink every time uh, Jason Bateman sighs on that show because you'll be blackout drunk, possibly dead when you do. <laughs> and I'm, wa yeah. and I'm watching Mosley like know that he messed up and he's just like contorting right before your very eyes. He's actually like turning into the cartoon jackass and you could see around the table, like the the, the king staff, the, the the people that came with the king, they're all like, "What?" And you could see the Downton Abbey staff just wanting to crawl underneath the table. It's all very subtle and very lovely and some fine acting, but it's there and it cracked me up. And it's the highlight of the movie for me. Um, but also, it's like the it's like the zenith of one of the major plot points to this. And that's fine, except that going into it cold, I had no idea why this was a big deal. And the movie doesn't really explain why it's a big deal. It's yeah. just is. Yeah, okay. I'm going to try to do my best to not just explain everything from the show. No, no, don't. That's don't. not really a review. That's right, a summary. That, that's, but, but, that's the, but that's my... Yeah. There's a very yeah. specific craft issue here with this. Sure. Which is, if you don't do the work in the movie you're not bringing along the audience and you have, and this can't just be a niche thing for the niche <laughs> audience. It's gotta be a general thing for a general audience or why did you even bother with this project? Yeah. Well, money is the answer. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to say like overall, the, w w I think what makes Downton Abbey so interesting, I mean, like story-wise, the show is pretty much a soap opera. Sure. Like it's all that kind of drama who's hooking up with who and who's going to inherit what and you know, some very, other. It's all very sexy and British. Yeah. Yeah. Often are. Yeah. By trying not to be sexy, but yep. I digress. Uh, but what, what makes it interesting is one, like it, it shows you this sort of very different cultural world. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. That, believe it or not, was not that long ago when you think about it. We're like sure. maybe less than, you know, it's less than 100 years ago the world was like this. And mm -hmm. And sort of the way that the aristocracy, their culture works and how they view the world. But then you also have this divide with the between upstairs and downstairs. So we also see how, you know, the help, for lack of a better term, they view things. Mm -hmm. And they also put this during a time where there was a massive amount of change. This was like you, you, you started off saying, you're like, why does England even have a monarchy? And throughout the course of the show they've kind of gone from well of course we have nobility like you know how, how could we not to the end it's like yeah why do we have these guys because like the first season takes place pre-world war one second mm -hmm. season is world war one and then third season is post-world war one right and that was an event that just dramatically altered 
you know, the cultural landscape. You know, up to this point, it was the job of the nobility to fight in wars. You know, like, like you, you know, we have the, the term, you know, put your dukes up or duke it out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's sure. where the term duke comes from. Like, the expectation was, if you were a noble, that if there is a war, the people are protected in your walls and you go out and you do the fighting and potentially get horribly killed. Can we talk about that for just a minute? Sure. We don't have to, we don't have to do it for TikTok purposes. Maybe we yeah. do. I'm going to write this down anyway. Yeah. Um, but I, it's interesting that you say that because think about, like, System of a Down. Okay. Are you familiar with the band? A little bit. I can't remember which song it is, but I only know um, Chop Suey, so Okay. <laughs> there's there's a refrain in the song and it's like, why do they always send the poor to war? I'll, I'll yeah. look it up in just a second when when you're responding to this. But sure. Think, think about the last mm, fifty to sixty years mm-hmm. of America of just American history. I don't know yeah. how it is everywhere else. But I'm interested in this idea of the nobility's job was to fight the war, right? Yeah. What you said. And when you think about the last 60-ish years of American military might, the off, what's often criticized about it is we only send the poor. Yeah. Like, the draft was people who couldn't get into college, and that's Vietnam. And yeah. then after that, you have people who don't have good college prospects, and, you know, the, the, the mine has dried up, or, you know, jobs have gone to India, or whatever the case may be, and so they go into the military. It's generally not, I mean, sure, you have your West Point people, you know, you have your college graduates who then go into the military, they are driven, they, you know, this is, they want to serve. But the vast majority, it has been said, and I don't have statistics to back this up, but this is certainly the cultural impression, is that America sends its least protected class, its most vulnerable, um, outside of the handicapped to fight the wars for us. That was the big criticism in of Iraq, aside from we shouldn't be there, quote unquote. Um, you know, illegal war again, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Not taking a side, just that was the argument. Yeah. And what a far cry that is, because like we we again we don't send our richest, most most educated, most noble Americans. But you're telling me a hundred years ago that was commonplace in England, and what a vast divide that is. Yeah, yeah. So like you'd you'd have like your knight, which is the lowest rank of nobility. They would maybe have a castle. They would have a horse, a suit of armor, a sword, and they would spend their days drilling with those, so that when when the realm was threatened, they could go off and protect the peasantry. But since they were spending all their time training for war, they couldn't really farm. Mm-hmm. So the peasants would pay a tax to to that knight to for protection, and then that just kind of goes more and more up the the chain of uh, nobility. So the idea is that nobles don't pay taxes because they pay their taxes in blood when when the time comes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you even look at the the sports that the nobles like to play, like, the, you know, hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, again, that was supposed to sort of brush up on those skills, you know, shooting and riding sure. and tracking. And, well, look at something uh, like rugby. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like even in the second season of, of the show, Lord Grantham is desperately trying to go overseas to fight in the war. But the powers that we have decided he's better to be like leading the charge at home with public relations, fundraising, and so on. And it's 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 killing him. Like he's you know, this right. is this is my duty to my country. I, I feel like this came up to some degree in the King's Man, too, where oh, it was yeah. the, the the um the, the son is mo is moved to go and do God's work to go fight in the war, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure there were plenty of nobles that were quite happy to not fight war because, you know, war's not good. And Sure. Yeah. Uh, but then you had, I think, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, or, well, the French Revolution was a big one where, like, they said, well, we don't have a nobility anymore. So now the duty of defense goes to everyone. So right. the French were able to raise a huge army because they basically grabbed everyone who didn't have something better to do, like make food, mm-hmm. or weapons. Uh, and when we get to the First World War, you had conscription instituted. So now every male of fighting age was expected to go and do their duty and fight the war. And many of them died. So after the war, they're like, hey, you nobles, you don't get to pay taxes and you get to vote. We don't get to vote. And your excuse has been because you go fight the wars. Well, we all fought the war. So damn it, we should have universal male suffrage. And the nobility's like, yeah, we can't argue with that. And then the women were like, hey, what about us too? And you know, this is a very quick brushing of that, but you can see okay. how the world changed after that point. And mm-hmm. the show sort of show, deals with that happening in the background is, mm-hmm. you know, like not just the technological process at, at the time, like there's a you know, discussion of you know, like putting wi- electricity in, in the house, like running wires and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the dowager, she's like, you know, what, it'll burn the place down. Like this is a natural <laughs> and an abomination. And, yeah, and that kind of thing, and then you have the young, like uh, uh, you know, the young, like the, the the kids, like the teenagers, are like, you know, oh, you know, this is great, you know, we've got radio and and gramophones, and you know, we, they're they're all into the the hip new technology at the time. So you sort of have this juxtaposition of the nobility's being shrunk and mm-hmm. the people wondering what what is it all for, and then you have the the basically the downstairs group being more empowered. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think uh, if you listen to Daisy in this in the movie, you know she's all mm-hmm. very you know I don't understand why everyone's so big on the king coming, you know like she started <laughs> off like with no education. Over the course of the show, she got an education, and afterwards she basically became a communist, revolutionary, <laughs> like you do. Yeah. So so you have that kind of stuff going on in the background, and obviously with uh, Tom, you have the issue of you know gay rights. You know he's he's homosexual, but he can't really be open about it because of what? the. Yeah, let's let's start. With, let, let me stop yeah. you there. Um, so I I didn't necessarily have a film criticism about this. It yeah. kind of went right past me. Yeah, Melissa actually objected to the uh, the homosexual plot line in the okay. Downton Abbey movie, and her objection was it just seemed shoehorned in. It's like, well, we got to have a gay plot line. Mm-hmm. Like she didn't feel like it was organic. She felt yeah. like it was sort of tacked on. And I was actually curious to hear what you thought about that argument. I mean, I can see that from the, you know, what are the odds that he would just so happen to find a guy who's, you know, works for the Royal household mm. uh, who, who just so happens to be gay and knows how to work the system. But uh, again, Tom's character is he's, there's sort of two sides to him. One is this sort of very angry and vindictive and petty mm-hmm. person who often you see it as a reflection of just the way he's always had to walk on eggshells and he's been ostracized for you know being the way he is. Okay. Uh, but also when he does make a friend, he is a very good friend. Mm-hmm. Like he, he will stick, stick up for his friends. He'll, you know, protect them from the darker aspects of society. So for me, I was, I was kind of happy that he was able to find some happiness because things rarely go well for him <laughs> in any okay. of this. Uh, they don't go like horribly nightmarishly wrong, but, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, like it's, it, it was, you know, you, you, you think about what things were like in the 1920s for, for, you know, uh, someone who's homosexual and you compare that to what things are like in 2020. Right. 
completely different worlds. <laughs> yeah, I know I brought this up before, but it reminds me of like, the, Patton, the Patton Oswalt joke where he's like checking in with the gay nephew and he's just like, it's so unfair. They won't let us have our gay prom on this day instead of that day. And he was just like, smack. What do you mean gay prom? <laughs> like we, we didn't have that option back then. What are you, you're not put upon. What's wrong with you? Um, yeah, it's, it's all relative, but yeah, yeah. but that it didn't really bother me. I don't think it sort of, it, I don't think it hijacked the, the plot of the film mm -hmm. at all, but no, uh, I don't think, I don't, yeah. and I don't think that's what she was implying. It, it was more of, it didn't feel like an organic part of the rhythm of the film. It seemed like, and this is, <clears throat> this is an example of my larger criticism of this. Yeah. Getting past the, this just feels like a long, you know, a special episode of Downton Abbey. I made that point. We can't yeah, from it. I, I agree. <clears throat> it <clears throat> it also feels like they definitely like what you know, like like you were said. They're they're in the writers' room and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with this movie. And it's like we'll have the king visit. Oh well, that, there'll be a natural um, antagonism between the king staff and 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 the uh, the house staff, and that'll be fun. We can do yeah. lots of stuff with that. Yeah, yeah. To to get to your point about the the house staff is so when so servants at this time like that was mm -hmm. your job, and you took right. pride in your job. Yeah, Melissa said it was a calling. Yeah, well, I'm, well I, I again, you, you look at the beginning of the show versus the you know quote unquote mm -hmm. end of the show because it's still technically going on. Um, yeah, and and it was like you got value thinking you know like I serve the nobility. Mm -hmm. you know, like I, I help them do their job and I derive value from I'm, that. I'm part of this machine that's important. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, I have trained my life to do this job. I'd like to do this. Again, there was uh, Cousin Matthew. I'm not going to go into the details, but he was basically a lawyer who was mm -hmm. sort of on the periphery of the of the nobility who basically got called in to be the next heir for, for the family. Mm -hmm. And Mosley was his, was his manservant, his valet. Ballet, I think. Anyway, uh, and it, it kind of really bugged Mosley that Matthew would always dress himself for dinner, mm -hmm. and and he's like, "Yeah, wouldn't you rather be doing something else with your time than you know, like waiting on me?" And then finally, someone pulled him to the side and explained, "He's like, no, like you know, people like Mosley have spent their lives learning how to do this job, and it's an aspect of pride for them that they do it. So you not using him makes him feel useless." And mm -hmm. and after that, Matthew. You know, starts to let him do stuff and Mosley's quite happy with that and again I'm not going to go into everything but it's sort of that idea so to get to serve the king and queen you know that would be for many of these characters like, in the major greatest league. moment of their life yeah right. like, you even remember when they go to get the groceries from Mark Addy as the grocer and he's like you know the king and queen will be eating food from my store this is <laughs> this is the greatest day of my life right Sort of thing, and, and yeah, for us, we're like, yeah, what? Yeah, like, well, no, what? I can appreciate that. John Cena once sat in my brother's, uh, in my brother-in-law's yeah. restaurant that he yeah, was yeah, chefing at one yeah, time, it, well, and it was yeah. like, I got to serve John Cena, who is, of course, American royalty. Yeah, it, it's that kind of thing. So, yeah. to, so you have the the Abbey being all excited for mm -hmm. getting to serve the royal family, and then the royal staff comes and is like, no, 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 take the day off. We've got this. We're not going to let you country bumpkins, yeah, you know, serve, serve your royalty, and and it's a slap in the face. So where I was going was that's all great. And and actually yeah. that's some of the best stuff of the movie. Yeah. And then it would feel, and, and so like they're sitting down and they're writing it. Like we have like maybe 40 minutes of a script here. Yeah. <laughs> we need <laughs> other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so they do the thing with the woman who's leaving, who her maid is actually her daughter, but it's yeah. a daughter, I think from an out of marriage affair. Yeah. Uh, and 
the what's your i can't remember the actress's name say maggie smith maggie smith who's awesome in this by the way oh she's amazing yeah she i have to say it, it as, a, as a person who doesn't really appreciate the show never watched it and was kind of went into this because it was i was doing a nice thing for my wife um she really is a reason to go see this movie and go see the second one. Oh she's yeah the, awesome. the cast all around is very good but yeah maggie smith i mean there's a reason why she's a dame yeah, Mag- Maggie Smith is is uh, is badass. Anyway, so Maggie Smith has some really great lines in this movie, and uh, which I'm which I'm like stealing because that's yes. like my jam. Oh yeah, um, I don't ar- I don't argue. I explain <laughs> exactly I, <laughs> things like like that's that's I want that on my tombstone. Um, <laughs> so my point being that the stuff with them was actually pretty good too. And so as as far as subplots go, um, it, it's resolved kind of quickly and without a tremendous amount of drama. You know, yeah. they have the one confrontation and she's like, yeah, she's my daughter. And that's kind of the conversation. And there's a little bit of her, as I read in the plot synopsis, going, eh, I, I can't really fight with her. But if I can maneuver some things around, you know, be all Rasputin about it, she's going to. But yeah, again, that really added is. all of maybe five pages to the script. So now yeah. we're at 45. And here's my complaint. The, the gay stuff and then the assassin stuff felt so... Like we need to we need to beef this up a bit. We don't have enough script here. Yeah, we need a bit of sizzle. Yeah, like you know, this is we're we're selling this to an American theater audience. These idiots watch Marvel movies and think it's high art, and they, they need to be you know think Spider Man needs to be nominated for a Best Picture award. We got to give them something here, or this thing's gonna bomb. Like, are there enough people at home watching this thing to go to the theater? To, to make this profitable it had to be the calculus and so i have to imagine like there were studio notes going you have to throw some kind of like you don't need maybe the the, the blues brothers you know you don't need a, a car chase or anything yeah but you need something but that's exactly how it felt like they didn't mask in any way the writing in this to where it felt natural and organic and you know interwoven into the greater plot line it just was like well, what else you got? I don't know. Let's have an assassination attempt. Those are fun. And then, you know, we'll we'll do some gay bashing and that'll that'll make us resonant with the woke Hollywood crowd and we accidentally got to 120 pages. Yeah. I, I, I again, I, I agree with your criticism. If if you're mm-hmm. looking for like a movie with the three act structure and everything, you know, I understand what's going on going in, everything's set up and then you get your payoff and then you're you your climbing action, your deceiving action, epilogue, and all that. Yeah, th- th- this doesn't have that. It's yeah. it, it's just a couple of TV show episodes that have been stitched together and mm-hmm. called movie. Yes, it lacks cohesion. Very good, David. Yeah, yeah. and 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 if that doesn't work for you, then I mean, you're right. It's not going to work for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not going to sit here and say no, Mark. You're wrong. You don't see this tightly structured plot. No, no, it doesn't have one of those. I think it's okay to recognize that this is not this is not a traditionally well-written film it's a nice film and there are nice things and and there are it's written nicely and it's certainly written as a i guess one might say a love letter to the fans it's like here come watch more of your favorite thing um i'm trying to think of like another example of this but for me i would rather them just do like a movie every year or two than to try and extend into like more and more seasons of the show where just the writing gets thin and they run out of ideas and it just turns into garbage Mm. you know i i I would just rather them say you know what we have 90 minutes of good ideas let's just make a move do that and call it a movie and Mm -hmm. on theaters and okay we've got another 90 minutes now let's do another one 
And, okay. you know, the people who like it, like it, and they go and see it, and people make money, people are entertained, and, you know, no, everyone's happy. This is, in the charges brought against this movie, is that it is simply not, not the most solid structure I've ever seen in a movie. It definitely feels like an extension of the TV show, so I think it's a little misplaced, but the counters, as, as we've been saying almost all hour was yeah but if enough people pay to go see it does it really matter you're you're holding the movie to a standard that almost nobody gives a shit about Mark pretty Rogers. much the, the the movie has it already has its audience they're yeah. willing to show up and pay so it all works out yeah and i and i get that yeah i think I, um, I, definitely if someone said oh i'm interested in this downton abbey thing where should i start i i wouldn't say this movie season one or three like season two is rough because this is not a movie if if you're if you're trying to get into the show this is probably not the way to start yeah Um, i mean i I would give the caveat that you know in this age of where everyone has phones with wikipedia at their fingertips mm -hmm. like if you watch it and you're kind of like okay this is kind of interesting but i'm not sure what's going on in the background like you can just read read a synopsis and like oh okay this is what's going on is there anything else you want to talk about with this? Because if not, I, I don't. We're we're at forty minutes. We don't need to go the full hour. Um, you know, we do. We have stuff to talk about. But I've kind of. I don't want to keep repeating myself, and I don't want to drag this out more than it has to be. Um, I will say some nice things about it. Is like I said, it's a. I don't remember, and I, and I can look now. As a matter of fact, oh, by the way, the song I was talking about was BYOB, and it goes, "Why do they always send the poor?" And if you skip down a little bit, um. It goes, uh, why don't presidents fight the war? Why don't why do they always send the poor? Why don't presidents fight the war? Okay, and it just repeats, repeats, repeats. So anyway, that's what I was referring to before. System of a Down, BYOB. It's a really good okay. song, by the way. Yep. I like that band. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as awards go, and <laughs> in 2020, it, it was nominated for a bunch of Movies for Grownups awards. Okay. This <laughs> is a movie for grownups. I can't see children... <laughs> um, here's what I was interested in. Um, it was nominated for best costume design for Award Circuit Community. Yeah, Critics Choice Movie Award. It was nominated for best costume design for Hollywood Film Award in 2019. It was costume designer of the year, and that one it won. Uh, they, they do put a lot of effort in trying to make it as historically well, accurate as possible. That was something I wanted to draw attention to. So my, I for uh, a gift for my wife. Um, I took her to the Downton Abbey exhibit in yeah. West Palm Beach, and it was a traveling exhibit. They would bring it to different places. And so the closest they got in Florida to where we live was West Palm Beach, and so we spent a weekend down there. And a lot of the, like, are not artifacts, but a lot of the props and costumes were set on display, and you could play with them and look at them and everything. And she was just in hog heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a lot of them grabbing her by the arm and saying, look at this doily. And then I had to hear the twenty-minute explanation of the doily. Um, yeah. I don't want to say I was suicidal at the time. No, um, <laughs> no, it was a lovely weekend with my wife, and I don't regret it at all. Anyway, um, my point yeah. is they they really did spend a lot of time uh, and effort in with very very specific uh, costume design prop design i mean the, even i can tell and you know again hey not not the historian here nor uh, nor my someone that's that familiar with the show obviously but i could tell just by watching the movie and kind of giving giving things a second look 
just how much intricate it, it again it reminded me of the crown how yeah. much detail they went into to make sure things look as authentic as possible seemingly authentic as possible and i just i wanted to make sure we highlighted that since you know yeah. we're talking about yeah, they, they really do their best to open a window into that world but at the same mm -hmm. time they're not going to hold your hand and explain everything to you you kind of right. have to just pick up on that through osmosis yeah they, they are they're not going to explain the history of the doily yeah like, like they're not going to explain that yes yeah, speaking to the king and queen is terrifying if you are from you know like <laughs> downstairs like that is not something servants do and that's why Mosley was just, you know, soiling himself, <laughs> you know, in, in the in the living room there. But you, you have to sort of get that from the way that the actors portray what's going on. And, you know, you have to read between the lines. I just love that, like the dresses, like, and I'm not really like a yeah. fashion person. We talked about this with Cruella uh, last year, yeah. where when it's pushed into my face and it's made a feature of the film, I will pay attention to costumes. It's not always the most important thing to me. There's always so much more to talk about with plot and theme and performance but <clears throat> a movie like this if you don't talk about the costumes you're missing a, a critical element you're missing a major leg of the stool that props well, not, not even just the costumes but like the cars as well like, yeah there's so many classic cars from that era mm -hmm. all, all put together and even uh, some appliances we get to see as as things get a little more modern mm -hmm. uh, like i think in the last it might be the last the last series they get a hairdryer Oh, and, fancy! Oh, and 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 some hijinks ensue because mm. you know, no one's ever used a hairdryer before. This is like a piece of specialist equipment that you need training on, <laughs> and it's like three times the size of a modern hairdryer. <laughs> they wheel it in in a barrel, you know, just just about. <laughs> but again, yeah. that's that's what it was at the time when you know there there was a time before hair dryers, and then there were hair dryers and. Sure. You know, like you, not everyone can have one. I was going to say, think about the television, you know, a massive piece yeah. of equipment that was. And now it looks like yeah. this. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. I don't think they do. They've done television yet. It's, they haven't gotten to that point. But no, they, did, they, did, they did do radio or wireless, as the English call it. Right. And they and uh, they, they, they were able to get a radio into the Abbey because the king was going to do his speech on the radio. And of course, you know, we have to listen to the king. And, mm -hmm. and, when the, and when the king's giving his speech, you see everyone listening or it's like standing at attention because the king is speaking and you're know, like, nobody knows, like, you know, what do we do? I mean, you know, how, how does this work? It's you know, it, and, and, Anything you, else you wanted to talk about, Dave? Any burning desires? Anything, you know, you came on this show, you wanted to talk about the movie. Was there anything else on your agenda? Yeah, I think I've kind of made my point about how it sort of gives a window to this era of history and this culture that existed at that time and sort of how it was and how it changed over the years. I mean, if you want to play the Downton Abbey drinking game and like after season five, take a drink every time someone says the world is changing or something to that effect. Yeah, you'll you'll, you'll, you'll start going cross-eyed pretty, pretty soon. <laughs> uh, is, it, is it Jason Bateman Ozark blackout drunk? Or <laughs> blackout drunk, but uh, you'll, 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 you'll get tipsy for sure. It's fair enough. Yeah, it's just a well done show for what it is and yeah, it, it's kind of nice to step into that other world and understand a bit about what happened before us. And can I can I tell you that your appearance last week on Doctor Strange, uh, Multiverse of Madness, was might might be one of the funniest David moments I've ever experienced. <laughs> and, and now I'm afraid also to put you and Robert on the same show because I feel like you're going to jump into the box that he's in and start and start strangling him. No, no, no. Like, uh, like to, to explain a bit of what happened at the time was I was under the impression that we had a strict two hour time limit. <laughs> so 
So I was just like, okay, we got to keep this thing moving. Like, like you notice how I kind of just stopped talking when we went into the money. It's just, it's it's the money. Let Mark talk. Like I'm just, yeah. kinda... which I appreciate. Thank you. It's like yes. the one yeah. thing that I, yeah. you know, I really yeah. it wasn't that I had lost interest. It's just like if I talk, we're going to keep this is going to go longer and longer. Yes. If we yeah. don't keep the strict reins on Damn You Hollywood when it's the four of us, yeah. you, Alexis, yeah. Robert, and I, that'll go three hours flat. Yeah. So 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 yeah. When when the, when the synopsis is like the first letter was T. <laughs> I don't like tea. Or Has anyone tea ever is? considered the vast multitude of the multiverse? No, just tell us what happened. Okay, that's what. No, yeah, we are no longer merging, so we don't have strict time limits anymore. Yeah, yeah, that that that's fine. But no, no, I'm I'm good. I mean, you know, we we all love Robert. We do love Robert. It, it was just you know, come on, we you know, let's let's get get the show on the go. I in. in I have told him when it's more than more than just he and I, he has to move it along, and sometimes he gets it. But he's Robert; these things happen. Um, and you know, it's great when it's just the two of us, and I don't care anymore. And then he wants to go off on a tangent. And another thing about the Jews, you know, I don't care. <laughs> but you know, when it when it's like, you know, Alexis has to you know do her thing, and then you you know you're trying to give your observations. It's like we don't have time for you know, waxing philosophical in a plot synopsis. So I got it. But it was so funny the way you did it. Like, it look, you look, I've never seen someone virtually push another man into the pool. <laughs> How you managed to do it from Canada to Utah was impressive. So yeah. we're, we're, we're mostly peaceful people. But if you if you get us wild <laughs> up, uh, you know, you yeah, watch out. Someone's going in the pool. All right. Just remember, at, at D-Day, you, you radioed us saying, could you slow it down a bit? We're three miles behind you. <laughs> so these are Maydays here. Uh, David, David's Maydays here at the Rattling Broadcasting Network. Uh, David will be back Thursday night to review with me Picard Season 2. At the very yep. least, he's going to tell me what happened if I can't watch the show because I don't want to reschedule it. But this may turn into, tell me what happened, Dave, because I don't fucking know. I didn't get a chance to watch it. I, I, I cleared Episode 4 yesterday, so I'm hoping I'll be mostly, if not completely, finished by then. I'm, I'm, I'm doing I'm my best here. I'm trying to shove three television shows into like one week here because I, I scheduled this poorly. Um, anyway, so then he'll be back uh, for another on trial. This will be May 23rd. And I guess you're going to be defending Top Gun, right? Yeah. Yeah, I actually have that written down. So you will be defending Top Gun and I will be prosecuting. And my prosecution is going to be, it's so gay. Um, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but boy, is Top Gun gay. Um, my son insisted that we get t-shirts for it because, you know, like we do little family t-shirts for the big movies. Okay. And I was like, okay, well, we did Doctor Strange. We're done for the season, right? Do we need to do dinosaurs for Jurassic World? And they're like, no. I'm like, does any, okay, do we need to do anything, any more t-shirts? Are we done with this now? And then my daughter was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over the t-shirts this year. I'm like, okay, fine. Party pooper. My son's like, we need Top Gun t-shirts. So yeah. I got one that says the danger zone on it. Nice. And I got him one that says I am dangerous. No, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That's not the he didn't want that one. He he pointed the one that he wanted. He's like, it's it's you know how there are t-shirts where the design is just a list of like names or words or whatever. Okay. And it's like and this and this and this and this and this. It's all the top gun call signals. Call call signals. Oh, call signs. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Maverick, in, Goose and, yeah. Nobody in real life has any of those call signs. <laughs> <laughs> Stop uh, demystifying uh, it for me. I, um, I, I, I would almost respect, but moreover pity any any naval aviator that goes to a new carrier group and says yeah my my call signs maverick because they are going to destroy you for the rest of your tour right in the dick huh <laughs> um speaking of being punched in the dick david and my wife will be joining me on a damn you hollywood 
May 24th for Downton Abbey to the New Era, which is why we did this tonight. So look at you all over my May calendar, Dave, just yeah. all over it. Uh, like a bad match. In the meantime, in between time, uh, originally this was going to tape tonight to air later in the week, but we are no longer part of American Whammy. So, you know, things are not what they used to be, which means I can just put up as much stuff as I want. <laughs> so uh, we're doing it while my wife is out tonight, uh, being footloose and fancy free and carefree and having fun. Uh, I am here holding it down in the Rattleton Broadcasting Network. And uh, I'm going to do my favorite thing. Her favorite thing is to be out with uh, people or people. My favorite thing is to talk about porn. So Sean Comer and I, we're going to do a triple feature on some porn adjacent movies, X, Red Rocket and Boogie Nights. So uh, by the time you hear this, you can check that out in the archive unless you just happen to catch us doing it live in two hours um, or in an hour. Uh, tomorrow, we'll be doing a Damn You Hollywood for the Firestarter remake, because why not? Uh, Wednesday, we've got the Superblog team up with celebrating the anniversary of Image Comics. Uh, Evan Bevins and I will be reviewing and comparing and contrasting the comic Term Life to the movie with Vince Vaughn, which is currently on Netflix. And then in the evening, we're taking a break from the Metal Hammer of Doom. So Jesse and I can talk Homicide, Life on the Street Season 6 as part of our continuing From the Corner to the Deuce, the great works of David Simon. And then we're doubling up again on Thursday. Uh, in the morning, we'll be, Alexis and I will be reviewing Upload Season 2. And in the evening, as I said, David will be back for Picard Season 2. So uh, no boxing this weekend, none of that. Um, that's all we got here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. So, David, always a pleasure. Um, yeah, court is now in recess, as we like to say on this show. <laughs> we'll see you again. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>